Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? It is wonderful to be with you all. So a lasting legacy. It is my belief that that is something that, um, that every one of us would desire to some extent. But with that desire, I also believe that, that along the way we can come to a place, and, and this is an emotion and a thought that I've uh, only really begun to have once I had children, but, but there's a level of uh, anxiety that may come with that. Sometimes maybe a sense of despair. You know, we want to leave this lasting legacy, but how do we do this thing? How do we leave behind something that is lasting, something that is good? And then when I think of my children is the responsibility I have to, to train them up. Because if I understand that, that, that children are a heritage from the Lord, uh, that they are arrows in the hand of a warrior, and I begin to understand, well, I'm that warrior. What is, what is required of a warrior to shoot an arrow well? It's an understanding of how to shoot that arrow. One, I have to grab a hold of the fact that I am a warrior, so I have to be trained myself, but I need to understand what it means to shape an arrow, to form an arrow, but also to operate a bow, to fire an arrow. But not only that, out there ahead, I need to know my target. I need to know what I'm hitting. So the last few weeks, as we've talked about that, we've, we've landed just foundationally that children are a heritage from the Lord. You know, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, but we understood and learned, learned last week that there is a target that we have set for us as parents. There's a target that we're meant to shoot that arrow at and hit, and we need to understand what that target is, but we learned last week as well that in order to hit that target, we have to not have knowledge of it, but we also need to understand for ourselves what it means to be a warrior. We looked at De Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we, we looked at drawing a circle around ourselves and beginning with ourselves. If we're to teach the commandments of the Lord to our children in order to shoot them straight and true, we need to understand ourselves what the commandment of the Lord is and walk accordingly as a warrior would in order to shoot our arrows straight and true. As we wrap up this series this week, I want to end more practically with, with a pathway to that lasting legacy. What does it really look like? What are things that we can do to help ensure a lasting legacy right now, to settle some of the anxiety that, that I may have around how to do that, we have the wonderful truth of God's word. See, God gives us instruction to do a thing and sets for us a target, but he knows that we cannot on our own get there, so he gives us instruction within his word to identify the target, but also how to fire our arrows well. So this morning, that's what we want to wrap up this series with, is what does that look like for us? So if you have your Bibles... You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at the first four verses. What Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and he's writing in this portion um, around our relationships and how we are to interact with one another. Just before these verses, he addresses the relationship between a husband and a wife. How, what the husband's role is, what the wife's role is. Immediately following this passage, he's going to talk about the roles for masters and servants. But here, right in the middle, is the relationship between parents and their children. children. Children and parents. And what this relationship should look like and what both sides of this are supposed to do. He begins in verse 1 with children. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, he says, that it, mo- that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So children in the room, right here from the Lord, God's word tells you to obey your parents. He says, this is right for you. If you're a child in this room, speaking to you specifically, it is right for you to obey your parents. Parents, you don't need to nudge your child right now. But it is right for you to do that. For no other reason, God's word just simply puts it, if you have that question, why do I have to obey my parents? Well, it's right for you to do it. And it's right according to God's standard of truth. But yet, even though it is right, it does follow. This is the first commandment with a promise. Paul makes it specific there. In your Bible, you see it as a parenthetical. He's making this statement, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It says, honor your father and mother. And then a parenthetical, he kind of steps out of it for a minute. And he says, this is the first commandment with the promise. Hey, children, I know you don't really want to obey your parents on a particular thing. But hey, it comes with the promise. Oh, it comes with the promise, really? How often do we do that with our children? Hey, if you do a thing, you'll get a thing. Amen? Right? Don't think you haven't done it. Don't act like you haven't done it. But another point here is when we address children in this room, this room is full of children to somebody. There are adults in this room who have parents. We're just as much, I'm just as much to continue to honor my father and mother as I was when I was a child. And the promise continues to come forth. And what is that promise? He's quoting uh, Exodus 20, 12 and Deuteronomy 5, 16. And he says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So children, it is right that you obey your parents. The promise that comes with it is that it would go well with you and you'll live long in the land. I learned a long time ago when I was a child that when I disobeyed my parents, it did not go well with me. That too was a promise in my household. And that was a promise and and an understanding that I came to have was there was consistency in that. As a child, I was meant to, according to God's word, obey my parents. But when I disobeyed, it didn't go well with me. But when I did, it did go well. There was joy in our household. Good things came to me. I was protected. I was okay. Oftentimes, some of the worst things that happened to me was when I disobeyed my parents. I went outside of their counsel. I went outside of their leading because I was ignorant to what I was doing. And I experienced the hardship of that. But I didn't fully understand. My parents were doing it to protect me. God institutes this for children in an effort to protect us so that it may go well with us. So children, this is the right thing for you to do. But he says this also, one point on this is he says, obey your parents in the Lord. That's a concept that you'll grasp over time if you really dig into it, but in the Lord, it is for the Lord's sake. It is for God's sake that you obey your parents. He is glorified when we follow after and obey our parents. Because as we learn to obey them, that translates as we get older in an obedience to him as our heavenly father. You see that? So children, students, teenagers, adults in the room who still have parents, 
But your lasting legacy can begin right now in the way you learn to live this out. And parents, that is highly important as we continue on and the focus is going to shift off of children obeying you to now you, how you lead your children. But if we understand and think through, their lasting legacy can begin now and how they learn to obey you, we need to really grab a hold of what we're leading them to. The things that we are desiring our children to, our, to obey us in, if it's forming a lasting legacy for them, we need to understand what we're wanting them to obey, obey us in. So Paul shifts now from children to verse 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. He says, But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he says, Fathers. We could take this as parents, not to the exclusion of of mothers in the room. But in this culture, whenever Paul is writing, he's addressing fathers because in the household, the primary influence in a child's life was the father, was the paterfamilia. It was dad. He had the authority. He had the say-so. He was the primary influence. So Paul directs it right at the source of all authority within the home, in that culture, straight to fathers. That is not much different than today. But in our culture, we can reverse this in many ways. Our culture can push dads down. There are many TV shows over the years that the father figure in the TV show is an inept idiot. And it's comical. But the dad is the guy that's just, uh, he really doesn't have things figured out. He breaks all the things. He's just really silly and he can't do anything right. And mom always steps in and she's the one running the show. And the dad, dad is just kind of falling behind. He's just the big kid that's with them. That's the picture that we can paint for dads and fathers, but that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is directed at fathers to do specific things. And in this case, Paul says, do not do something. He begins here with don't do this thing. And he says, do not provoke your children to anger. The word provoke there, it means to rouse to wrath specifically. Don't exasperate your children. But specifically to what? He says, to anger. Now, I've been curious over the years as I've, as I've read through this verse, I've taught on this before, and I look at what Paul begins with here as he's addressing fathers, as he's addressing parents, and he's telling them, don't provoke your children to something. The thing, the emotion that he begins with, the one emotion that he says here is anger. I'm like, why? Why anger? Why is that the one thing that he says don't provoke your children to? Why not don't provoke your children to despair? Don't provoke your children to discouragement? Discouragement? Don't provoke your children to fear? But no, he says to anger. And the question I have is why anger? What is it about anger that is so serious here? James chapter 1 verse 20, he tells us what anger produces or what it doesn't produce. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But it produces something. But if it doesn't produce the righteousness of God, anything opposite of righteousness of God is going to be unrighteousness, whatever it may be. So our anger, the anger of man, doesn't produce God's righteousness. But fathers are to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We can call that over time. If we grow up in the Lord, we find righteousness. We find godliness in the Lord. We do not find unrighteousness. So Paul begins, he says, don't provoke them to anger because that emotion leads somewhere contrary to the place that you're meant to bring your children up to. 
And we all understand this fleshly emotion. We all understand how it feels. My ditch, my struggle is frustration and anger. And it always has been a challenge for me. So I understand what the emotion feels like. And I could say we all understand what it means to feed it. One of the questions that we can ask oftentimes and we want journey group leaders and journey groups to be talking about is what is an area that you struggle or what is your ditch? Or where are you struggling in your flesh in this body? And for me, oftentimes it's anger. And the follow-up question of that is how are you feeding that flesh? The way I feed my anger is I let it loose. My anger turns to rage sometimes. If anyone can relate to when we're mad and we let that out, it comes out in yelling, screaming maybe, throwing something, breaking something. As it pertains to our children, what do we call that? A temper tantrum. But adults, you better believe it. You have temper tantrums too. But we call it something different for a child. But what happens whenever we provoke a child to anger and that anger is let loose and it comes out in this child as rage or a temper tantrum, what are we now going to do as parents? We're going to correct it. Most likely, we're going to get onto them. Most likely, we're going to lose patience, and they're going to be in trouble for throwing that temper tantrum, for tossing themselves on the ground and just screaming and kicking and all that. They're going to get in trouble. So we've created a situation. If we're provoking them to that, we created a situation to which all righteousness has gone out of this child but we create a situation where now we're going to now have to discipline them for something that we did. Paul says, don't do that. Don't put your children in a position of ungodliness and unrighteousness that you're going to have to correct. Now, there are certain things that we can disallow in our children. There are some things that our children do not need to have and can't have, but they want. They desire to have a thing, they can't have that thing. So whenever I say no, and she does throw a temper tantrum, that's not me provoking them to anger. That's me protecting them from a thing that's going to harm them, and that emotion comes out, and I have to correct that, which we'll get to some on that here in a little bit. But Paul is very specific at the beginning. Do not provoke them to anger, because it produces something contrary to God's righteousness and his godliness in their lives. And will lead them to damaging things. Just the emotional state of anger doesn't build up, but it tears down. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two says, "A man of wrath stirs up strife, and no one given to anger and and one given to anger causes much transgression." Proverbs fourteen twenty nine: Whoever is slow to anger is has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So anger is a thing we want to steer away from, not provoke to. It produces foolishness, strife, conflict, hatred, malice, violence, wrath, all of which destroy rather than build up. So Paul, as he begins, I would say rightly so, fathers, start there and do not provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them. Speak kindly with them. Don't pick on them. I see fathers pick on their children a lot, and it stirs me. In part, probably because when I was in junior high, I got picked on a lot, and I don't like bullies. But to see a father continually picking on their child and their child getting mad, it stirs me. It stirs my anger because you're creating a situation that you're about to have to correct in your son. You're going to get onto him because you're making him mad. Paul says, don't do that. 
But instead, he says, bring them up in two things. He says, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, here's the complete opposite of, of, of anger in that, is bring them up. The word in the Greek there is ektrepho, and it means to nourish up to maturity. Specifically, literally, it means to nurture. Now, what do we think about fathers? Do we typically think of fathers as the nurturers? No. Right? Who are the nurturers? Moms, right? Fathers, we're just hard, we're gruff and all that. The nurturing ones are, are the mothers. They're the ones that are soft. They're the ones that are compassionate. They're the ones that are supposed to nurture the children. What, what does Paul say? Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger, but you should nurture them. My role as a father is to nourish, is to get on a level, is be soft with my daughters and nurture them, bring them up into specific things. And that is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the discipline is paideia. And it means here in this context, it is the whole training of a person. It is the whole training and education specifically of children. Think of it as a field of study. It's not necessarily bring them up in discipline where I'm correcting behavior, but he says bring them up in the discipline. It's a field of study, so to speak. Think of it like a college course. It's a discipline that we learn. You bring them up, you nurture them to this learning, to this understanding. In Jewish culture, it referred to the law. Jewish children were brought up, they were nurtured and taught God's law. That formed the basis of their, of their life and how they were to live and act and operate. In Greek society, it referred to the rearing and education of the ideal member of the state. So you see the difference between those. But both of them are a discipline that determines how we are to behave and how we are to act and interact with one another in a society. So we nurture them to this discipline and specific to us, it's God's word. It's what his word would say for life and godliness and how we should live, how we should act, how we should interact with one another in all of our relationships, in our relationship with him, relationship with others, how we respond to things. It is a discipline, it is a field of study that requires years, a lifetime of study, but it begins when we're children. So it's not just shaping behavior. If you think your job as a parent is just to shape bad behavior into good behavior in your child, you've got your priorities all out of whack. Because we're born from the seed of Adam, we're born into this world as sinners, and it doesn't take long to see that begin to manifest itself in a person. So we're not just here to correct behavior. We're here to change the moral character and moral direction of children as God defines it. And with his help, the discipline is his word. It's his standard that we learn. And again, go back to last week. If we don't know the standard, how do we train our child in it? Something else will begin to define that standard. Proverbs 22, 6 says this. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. That's an encouraging proverb. But I think it can often be misunderstood. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. So if we just train up a child in this direction, you're supposed to go this way. When they're old, they're not going to depart from it. Is that, is that true in that sense? Who has adult children in the room? 
Will's point, who's got adult children? Did they go the way you told them to go? No, they didn't. That doesn't mean you failed. Don't get me wrong. But as we look at this passage, as we, as we lay it against what Paul says in bringing up and nurturing our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, here the, the psalmist or the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. So train up, it comes from the root word that is similar, but it comes from a root word in the Hebrew that describes a midwife who would rub the gums of an infant to stimulate nursing. The idea is to develop a thirst So we're to develop a thirst in our children, but a thirst for what? He says in the way that they should go. Again, that Hebrew word for way can mean direction. This is your path and you go this way. But it also carries the meaning of manner or characteristic. So you develop a thirst in your child to develop and grow into a characteristic or a manner, not just so much a direction. See, you and I were created as individuals, right? None of you in this room is the same as me. Good for you. But bad for me. Because wouldn't it be awesome if everybody's like me? (laughs) Okay. Wouldn't it be awesome if everybody's like you? No. No. Nobody wants that. There are times in our life where we can be like, man, if everybody just thought like me, this would be fantastic. No. No, I can be good with me in a moment, but if everybody thought like me, like, man. <laughs> yeah. My patio still would not be done. It's been weeks. Yeah. Even with help. But we're all created individual. We're, all, we're not all the same. But that is by design. Psalm 139, we are intricately woven in our mother's womb. God knitted us together individually. Yes, genetics, he takes parts from our parents and puts them together and it makes us and all that stuff exists. But that's God's way of designing you and I as individuals to be who we are according to his design. Chuck Swindoll, he makes this wonderful point in his book, You and Your Child. He says that in every child is a bent to a certain thing. It is predetermined, it is preset. As the Lord knows every hair numbers all, numbers all the hairs on your head. Before any of our days came to be, they were numbered. The Lord determined these things. So there is a bent in us, according to the Lord, that makes us who we are. Our personalities are shaped according to the Lord and he, how he designed us to be. Now, yes, there are experiences. There's life experiences. There's people that can shape that personality. But the foundation of it is set by the Lord. So for our parents, if we're to train up our children or develop a thirst in our children, the thirst and way we want to develop in them and develop a thirst for is for them to be them. For them to be themselves. That way, when they do get older, they're not confused about who they are. They're set in their way and their personality and who God created them to be. That is the thing that they do not depart from. But what is our world teaching? See, this is why it's imperative for parents to be training up children. We should be nurturing our children and training them up, developing a thirst for them to be who God created them to be because they live in a world that tells them they can be anyone they want to be from this day to the next. 
And that's a lie. God created you to be you the way he created you to be. But if you believe the world's lie, you're going to get out into the world. You're going to be on social media. You're going to be looking at all these other places telling you that you can be this thing if you so desire to be this thing. Or you're not the thing that you say you are. And there's absolute confusion on what identity really is because we've fallen so far away from what God says. Is that you are intricately woven together. There is a bent in you that God placed for parents to be effective as God desires us to be. We need to identify that bent and change or manage our training according to that. Too often we want our children to be something they're not or we want to create them in our image instead of letting them be the image that God created them to be. And finding that, nurturing that, that is the thing that is developed and they have a thirst for and they're secure in who they are. They don't get to be a teenager and they hear that they can be this or someone tells that and they get absolutely confused and they have no idea who they are. So they look to the world to define that for them instead of what God's word tells them and what you have encouraged in them, you've instilled in them, what you've trained them in and brought them up in. So yes, if we understand what training is and nurturing is and developing a thirst is, but let our children be who they are. Oftentimes, children want to do a thing. I've seen it. I've spent a lot of time with students over the years in student ministry, and I see it often, where you have a child that really enjoys this thing, loves this thing. They find joy in it, blessing in it, but their parents hate that thing. And their parents try and shove it out of them. They want them to let go of that thing that they like and be something else because a parent doesn't like it. Well, you're just, you're provoking your child to anger. Let them be who they are. Now, there certainly are things that your child and your children are going to desire that you need to protect them from. There's discernment there for sure. But if there's something that is innocent that they just enjoy, but you don't, don't try and take it out of them. If they like basketball, but you really want them to love football, Get over yourself. Forgive me. But nurture who they are and trust the Lord in how he designed them. And those are ways that you instill security in who they are in them. And that will come from the Lord and that will come from you, their parent. Don't let your child grow up always wanting something contrary to you, then they're fearful of the thing that they desire because you've made it abundantly clear how much you don't like what they like. That will provoke to anger and exasperate your children. So there's discipline. There's padaya as a noun. But I do want to hit on that word as a verb and how we find that in God's word. Because there is discipline. There is correction that we are to do Within our, children, not, within our children, not just a training up, but also a correction. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse five, uh, 5b through 6, it says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline, that's padaya, or the noun, of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, paduo, this is the verb form, but he disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. So the Lord, loving us, disciplines us. He acts out in discipline and corrects us. 
Specifically, he chastises us. But that's a word that when I was reading this and I was preparing through this, I was thinking that that word chastise, I don't like it because it carries this, this negative connotation with it to be chastised, right? And I don't want to be chastised because it, 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 it tends to put me in a lesser place. You're pushing me down if you're chastising me. Stay in your lane is kind of what comes to mind in my own arrogance. But if we understand what the word means, it simply means to rebuke. I promise you, I need to be rebuked from time to time. And you certainly know your children need to be rebuked from time to time. And sometimes rebuked severely depending on what they've done. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. That is very strong language as it pertains to discipline. Whoever spares his, the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to, decide, or to discipline him. So we should be diligent to correct and discipline our children. Now, there is a correct way to go about that, and we're going to get on that here in just a little bit as well. But we should be training them, we should be nurturing them, but we should also be correcting them because there's always going to be things as children that need to be corrected as we grow them into maturity. And that never stops. Again, we're all children in this room. We're all children of God. So we should be learning and growing and maturing. And we will always need correction. So we bring them up in the discipline, but we also bring them up in the instruction. The word there is nuthesia, and it means admonition. To admonish someone is to gently correct. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. I jumped ahead, I'm sorry. Admonition. Yes, it's to have corrective influence on someone. It's to seek to right a wrong, simply put. So when we get out of step with what is right and we need adjustment, parents, you are there for your children to admonish them and to change their direction and correct them and get them back on the right path and the way they need to be going. So now, where the responsibility in this lies? Paul says fathers. He's directed at parents. Parents, it is your responsibility to do these things for your children. It is your responsibility to train them up, to nurture them. It is no one else's responsibility. To think to abdicate that responsibility to someone else is foolish. It is your responsibility. They're your children. The Lord gave them to you. We have the responsibilities. We looked at last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 6, he says that this, this, these words that I commanded you to, today should be on your heart. But then he says, you, in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Again, the word diligently. There's a continuation. You, these are your children. It is your responsibility to do these things for your child. But again, as we learned last week, you cannot give away. You cannot teach what you do not know. But when we do not know something, what do we do? If we want our child to learn a thing and we don't know it, what do we do? We outsource that. All the math, science, and history that we don't remember when we went to school, we want them to know some of that. So we take them to school. We drop them off for someone else to teach them the things that we forgot when we went to school. But what do we do whenever it's matters of faith and spirituality and godliness? When we don't know, we come to church. It's the place that knows it, so we come to church. 
And we drop our kids off for an hour, and they go to kids' ministry. And then for an hour, one day a week, if we're outsourcing things that we don't know to the church, and the church for an hour of the week is trying to tell our children all the fundamental truths of the Lord. And I can promise you this, our kids' ministry is doing that. And our kids' ministry does that very well. And our kids' ministry works really hard to love your children well. But if you believe that our kids' ministry is sufficient to produce in your children the things that God's word determines should be there, you're foolishly misplaced. It is not enough for us to drop off children and outsource their Christian education for an hour on a Sunday morning. There's no other area of your child's life that you do that. It stirs me just a little bit. I mean, I'm not in anger, but just I'm, I get frustrated around that point. Is what other area of your life do you drop your kids off to learn a thing for one hour of the week that is sufficient for it? They don't do it with school. They're at school for Eight hours? Well, nowadays, five. What, how long are they at school today? But they're hours of the day. They're at school for four or five days a week. They're hours on a practice field throughout the week, learning a sport. But when it comes to the life of godliness, eternal matters that are lasting, when we think of a legacy that is lasting, how many hours of the day or how many hours of the week are spent training them on those things compared to everything else that we want our children to learn? But we are, our, our hopes are very much misplaced if we think we can just take them to a church on a Sunday morning for kids' ministry or Wednesday night for student ministry. We teach them wonderful things that are great, and it is a joy to be a part of it and to do that in the lives of your children and to get to know them. But you are it, not the church. The church partners with you. You don't partner with the church. That is God's design here. Paul says, fathers. He doesn't say, church, don't provoke children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. No, he says, fathers. So it is our responsibility. It is Cody King's responsibility, along with my wife, to teach these things to our girls and allow the church to partner with us as they get older to develop those things. The home will always be the most dominant influence in a child's life, whether good or bad. Will always be. So as we wrap up this series, I want to end with just some practical takeaways. I've got four Ps that we can all understand that will help us begin to lay out a pathway to a lasting legacy with our children. So number one is be present. Be present. Colossians 3.21. Fathers says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children. But then to the church in Corinth, or Colossae, Paul says, don't provoke your children lest they be discouraged. So he says, don't discourage them. Provoking your children does, can anger them, but it also discourages them. So the opposite of provoking then becomes encouragement. So we have to be present in the lives of our children, but be present with encouragement. Encourage them in the things that they do. Your presence with your children becomes an area of encouragement. 
if you're looking to nurture them and train them up, if you're being led by the Lord, your presence alone will develop and encourage them. So we should be available. We should be reachable. We should be interruptible. And we should be consistent with these things. But there's often times when we think about even being interruptible. You know, we can be in a conversation with someone and your child is there and I see it and now I've experienced it. It's, it's papa, 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 mama, 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 mama. You know, and you're just, no, we're talking right now and you shut them down. There is a level to that where they do need to understand respect and wait. But at the same time, we need to be interruptible. Sometimes allow that to happen because they're trying to get their, our attention for something. But being present is being reachable, being available, being there and responding to them. But here's a few things to not be as they can provoke to anger or discourage. One is overprojecting. You're present, but you're present too much. The helicopter parent. You're constantly doing, you're constantly you're not allowing them to experience any bit of individuality or self-sufficiency. If we're always doing everything for our children, they're not learning to do for themselves. And that can become discouraging. I mean, I can think of a time in my life. I mean, there was, I'm not, I'm not knocking on my parents. They did a fantastic job with me, I thought. I think, maybe I'll be the judge of that. Is this life? <laughs> but nonetheless, I can think of a time where where I desired to do a thing. I wanted to go and do this for myself. I wanted to make the decision. I wanted to make the purchase. I wanted to have it all on my own. And then my dad shows up with it. And I mean, I got mad. I mean, he didn't know it. But I was upset. I wanted to do that. I wanted that self-sufficiency. And he went and just did it for him. I'm not saying my dad was overprotective, but there's an example. Allow space for your children to be them and do some things and learn to do some things. But then also things that can provoke anger as you're present with them, but show, being present with them, but showing favoritism somewhere else. If you have multiple children and you're out of balance and you're always encouraging and always praising one and not the other, you are going to provoke to anger. You're going to exasperate and discourage your children. So guard against showing favoritism. So number one is be present. Number two now is be proactive. Have a plan. Proverbs 22, 3 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So be prudent. We should be looking ahead. We should look to the future and have a plan for the future. We should plan for days, weeks, or years ahead even. Not trying to write the story of your children, but think ahead to what may be coming. Right? Talk through as a spouse, how are you actually going to discipline? Whenever something comes up, if you have a plan for how you're going to respond to that thing, you're now responsive to it, not reactive to it. And there's a vast difference between reacting to something and responding to something. Because when we react, what are we usually reacting out of? Emotion. Typically in a negative emotion. One encouragement I can give you, fathers and mothers for sure, as best you can so far as it depends on you, do not ever discipline your child in anger. Because if you're disciplining them in anger, you're not looking to correct, you're looking to shut down. 
So don't discipline in anger because, again, anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The correction that you desire is not what you're going to get if you're responding out of anger. So guard against that. So how? Talk through. How are you going to discipline? What level of corporal punishment is there? When are we going to respond in this way? When are we going to ground? When does something escalate to this or that? Talk through and have a plan so you're responsive, not reactive. And you're also building in consistency with that. So your child isn't getting something different all the time that they can't learn and remember and respond to. So be careful with your discipline and not over-disciplining them. And constantly shutting down everything that they do and correcting everything that they do. Because they come to a place where they believe that they're always wrong and never do anything right. That's an identity that's going to set with them. And then there's going to be great discouragement. There's going to be insecurity because they can't do everything right. Because it's been made clear from their parents they can't do anything right. So be careful with over-disciplining. But another thing to plan for is if you have young adolescents... If they're heading into preteen years, what are things that preteens experience or face? What are things today that teenagers face? I can promise you right now, parents, if, if you are not making a plan and being proactive on this point right here, if you're not aware, it is, it is we cannot be ignorant to what the world is going to tell your teenager. You have to be proactive. You have to learn and educate yourself on what the world is going to tell your children about who they are, contrary to what God says they are. And it goes back to all that nurturing and all that training up. Have a plan for how you're going to address it when they get out there and they experience that and they come home and they ask you a question of, Mom, I I don't know if I feel like me. I kind of feel like I'm somebody else. What if your child comes home and says that? What if your child comes home and says, Mom, I kind of, I kind of feel like I'm a, I'm a boy, not a girl. Have a plan for that conversation. Do not, do not walk into that conversation blindly. You don't want to create that for your children, but we're training them up and the world wants to tell them that. It wants to confuse them in that way. Have a plan for how you're going to walk through that conversation when it comes. Better yet, Have a plan, and with discernment, have that conversation before that confusion sets in. Give them truth that the world's lie butts up against instead of let them experience a lie and try and fight it with truth. Reverse that. Have a plan and be proactive. That is training up. Start young. And you want to maintain their innocence for as long as you can. So be careful with wisdom and discernment with when you introduce certain topics as you discuss things with your kids. But know what's coming and have a plan for it. Number three is be patient. Amen? Amen. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with your spouse. But certainly be patient with your children. Because they're growing, they're maturing, they're going to do things that are out of line, they're going to do things that are just over here, it's like, oh my goodness, how did you get over there and start doing that? But be patient with them. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, uh, Paul says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or the disorderly or undisciplined. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, that's the timid, and then help the weak or the feeble. And then he says this, be patient with them all. 
Now, Paul is writing that to the church, but real quick, let's just look at this. What are children? Are children undisciplined? Yep. Are they timid at times? Yes. Are they feeble? Yes. Emotionally, physically, all those things. Are your children? Paul says, be patient with them all. If this, these things and traits can exist in us as adults, you know they exist in a child's mind. So he says, be patient with them. But also, we should admonish. There's that word, nuthesia. Admonish them whenever they're undisciplined. Encourage them when they're timid. And help them when they're weak and feeble. But through patience. Not getting ahead of ourselves. Patience puts our heart in a place of kindness where we respond as the Lord would desire us to respond. And then be on guard against these things, expecting more than they can ever perform. The way we can lose patience often is we desire our child to be able to do a thing that they can't do. Why can't you do this thing? It's really simple. Then we lose patience as we're trying to teach them that. And then we exacerbate them and we make them mad. And they think they're not good enough and we completely discourage and they shut down. And I don't want to do that anymore because you're too hard all the time and you're not patient with me. So guard against expecting more than they can ever perform. But the reverse of that is true as well, is expecting less than they can perform. If patience just goes out the window entirely, kid can't do that. And you let them know what they can't do, they're not going to try. And if they simply don't have an ability to do something, I promise they're going to figure it out and it's going, they're going to be okay. But if you're constantly pointing it out to them, you're going to discourage them and it's not going to produce security in them. So one, be present. Two, be proactive. Three, be patient. And the last one is just as important in my belief. And I save this for last. Fathers, this is you more than anything else. Be playful. Be playful. If you have little children, fathers, as best as your physical body will allow you, get on the floor with them. I started late. I'm 40 and I feel it. My girls are two and six months, but I'm on the floor a lot. But there's so much joy that I experience when I'm playful with my girls. Paul says that to the church at Thessalonica to admonish the idol and, and, and encourage all that stuff. But then immediately following that in verse 16, he says this, rejoice always. There is a joy that ex should exist in us at parents that bleeds down to our children. If they're going to be in despair or they're, they're not going to be happy, let them not be happy about something else. Don't let them be angry or upset because of you. Let the joy of the Lord flow out of you. Proverbs 17, says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Everyone in this room can relate to that. So seek to be joyful and playful with your children and allow your children to be children. If you have teenagers, be playful with them. Don't let your teenager come to that place where they're just too cool for school. I got a nephew that is really hard to get this cat to smile. You're just so serious all the time. But be playful. Get them laughing. Get them smiling. Play games with them. Get on their level. But allow children to be children. If they're joyful, do not rob them of their joy. Allow them to be who God created them to be. Nurture that. 
And as they grow old, they won't depart from that. They'll be who they are, secure in the Lord and secure in who you've allowed them to be. And I promise you, lines of communication that get shut down in teenage years will remain open if you're allowing children to be who God created them to be. If they trust you in who you believe they are and allow them to be, they're going to trust you to come and talk to you in moments where you're really going to need them to talk to you. You will lessen moments where they close it off for fear of you. Do not let your children fear you. But if you're provoking to anger and you're exasperating and you're not encouraging and you're always shutting down and trying to get them to be something that they're not, you're going to close them off from you. Guard against that. So be playful. Now, lasting legacy, it starts with you and it ends with you. Better yet, we go back from last week. If we were to draw a circle around ourselves, if I were to draw a circle on this stage and I were to step in it, a lasting legacy that I desire starts with me and it ends with me. It starts with my pursuit of the Lord and his leading in my life and my ability to take that learning and to teach it to my children. If I'm not doing that, I don't have anything to give away. I'm going to give away my opinion, and I'm going to create my children in my image. And by golly, if they follow my image. God forbid they end up like me. Apart from Christ. I want my girls to see Christ in me. And that be the standard the standard that I set according, according to God's standard. And as I allow him to shape me, I will shape them till they come to a point where they learn to be shaped by him as well. So let's fill our quiver with sharp, straight arrows. But let's learn how to shoot them. Know your target. Know how to shoot them. Know how to gather them if they miss it. And we'll be on our way to a lasting legacy that glorifies the Lord and edifies our families and a culture that needs to see strength in the family. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. And I thank you for a lasting legacy, Lord, that, that you provide. Lord, for generations that have come before, Lord, that have led to me now. But I pray for your help, Lord, to continue on, to give that away to my children. That they may come to know you and be shaped by you, Lord. And until that point where your spirit is present, Lord, I pray for your help to guide them into truth, Lord, to give them knowledge of your truth. That way, when your spirit does come and they have that knowledge there, Lord, and they get an understanding of it, Lord, that helps to solidify the foundation that you've required of me to set. I pray for every present parent in this room, for every parent in Will's Point, every parent that is watching online, Lord, that you would help us according to your word and your spirit with your, the help of your people to deepen in our walk and relationship with you, Lord, and that out of the overflow of that, Lord, we learn to train up our children and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
for your glory, Lord, and for their good. We love you and we thank you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.